0: When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locusts, the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness, I would almost say that they save me, and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself, in which I have goodness, And discernment, and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches, and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this. To go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. Without any real effort on my part, I am becoming an old man. (laughs) And like the author of uh, tonight's text from Isaiah and the psalm for tonight, which we didn't hear, but it's Psalm 71, Like Isaiah and like that psalm, I am becoming more reflective, and I am beginning more clearly to recognize God's work with me and for me from way back, from my mother's womb, as it were, uh, to this present moment. Being raised in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, there among the trees that Mary Oliver names had its benefits. It was there as a young boy that I was given an especially valuable insight. My Uncle Dale was seriously involved for a time with racing pigeons. When he started out, some fellow pigeon fanciers from over in Knoxville gave him his first pigeons. They were their old birds, their castoffs, their calls. So you might imagine the surprise when Uncle Dale's birds began to win all the races in the <laughs> East Tennessee region. As a boy, I felt like I was witnessing a deep mystery. And in a way, I suppose I was. Finally, one day, Swearing me to secrecy, my Uncle Dale shared his testimony. He said, One morning, as I sat among the birds, not thinking too much, a word came to me, a word as bright as the sunlight, (laughs) pre-digested. Now that word had been there all along on the bag of the bird seed for my pigeons. I reckon I read it more than a hundred times. But just then, I let it mean something to me. And so, I walked in the light of it. Then he kind of leaned back in his rocker and he smiled the biggest smile and he nodded as if he had just explained to me the mystery of the Trinity. (laughs) It took me months to figure out the pigeon part of his testimony. Turns out, most birds need rocks in their craw. They need pebbles to grind up the seed for swallowing. But if the feed is pre-digested in size, then the rock is unnecessary. And if you take four ounces of rock off a 16 ounce bird, it will fly like it's on fire. (laughs) And so tonight I want to say it's important, especially for an old bird like me, to drop what is unnecessary in order more freely and more fully to be and do what I was born to be and do. Now, the other portion of Uncle Dale's testimony, that is taking me decades to grasp. I'm I'm not sure I have it yet, but I do feel it has something to do with our readings for tonight. For tonight, we do find ourselves in between. First of all, liturgically tonight, we are in between Sunday's celebration of the Annunciation and Wednesday's shadow the shadow that's cast by those ominous verses, and they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver, and he began to look for opportunities to betray him. Historically tonight, of course, we are in between the joy of Palm Sunday and the terror of Good Friday. We are between birth and betrayal, between Hosanna and crucified. And when we reflect on our other readings, we do feel ourselves very much in between, between rejection and acceptance, between assurances past and anxieties present, between Jews and Greeks, strong and weak, foolish and wise, between death and redemption, between darkness and light. Judith McDaniel, when she was up at Virginia Theological, she pointed out that even the structure of tonight's gospel reading adds to this complementarity of opposites. It is a hinge, this reading, she says, for the author of John, swinging as it does between the first major division, the the book of signs, and the second major division, the book of glory, Now, you might recall that in verse 19 of the 12th chapter of John, exasperated Pharisees say of Jesus, the whole world has gone after him now. And in the very next verse, where our reading of the gospel begins for tonight, indeed, some Greeks symbolizing the whole world, that is the Gentile world, do in fact come seeking after him. And what does Jesus do? He ignores them. And instead, he immediately reasserts the simple and sobering good bad news, the terrible and transformative declaration of death into life. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I think if we look objectively at the flow of the gospel I read a minute ago, we might... Rightly ask ourselves, so why is our Lord Jesus being so rude to those nice Greek boys? (laughs) Jesus is an ascending star. The whole world is running after him. Would it have hurt for Jesus to allow them a moment to simply bask in his effulgent glow? Would it have hurt for Jesus to take the meeting? (laughs) after all Greeks seek knowledge they seek logic they seek wisdom they follow the pursuits of the intellect what could be so wrong with a friendly debate or a little small talk but Jesus refuses to go there now it reads to me like our Lord intuited what is likely to happen next, and it's not what he wants. He seems to want to assert that his life is not about his own glory, his importance, his weight, his celebrity. He wants to assert that the luminous presence of the divine, having been heretofore witnessed to by signs and miracles, will now be most brilliantly seen in Obedience, single-minded obedience, even if that obedience leads to death, the sole purpose is for God to be glorified. And even though, as you heard in that reading, even though in affirmation of Jesus' assertion, the very voice of God speaks its amen, what Jesus had intuited and tried to avoid does, in fact, occur. For now, the gospel reading shows, for now, we are going to have a debate. We're going to intellectualize. In human wisdom, we will have theological certainty. And so in verses 29 through 34, the people with Jesus become talking heads. And so when God's voice is heard, they say, what was that sound? Some of them say, oh, that sound? Oh, well, that sound is the only logical sound it could possibly have been. That's thunder. And others say, thunder? Are you, are you dumb? Don't you know anything about angelology? <laughs> that sound is what angels sound like when they're talking to each other. So it's no surprise that in our gospel, Jesus is kind of quick to try to get back on message. And he says this incredibly, this remarkable thing. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He suggests the method of his murder, and he uses for the term lifted up the same word used for to enthrone a king, and he predicts that his obedience will bring about a wide unity among diverse people. Wow. And how do the folks who get to hear this remarkable thing for the first time, how do they respond? Well, the gospel tells us. They say, "Uh uh-huh, but now wait a minute, because what we think you're trying to do is trick us somehow. Didn't we read about all this stuff when we were in school? Okay, look, Jesus, if you're so smart, explain this. The Messiah... Is he the son of man? And and the son of man, does the son of man have a shelf life? I mean, is he temporal? Is he permanent? I mean, we were always taught that when Messiah comes, he will stay forever. So what's this new logic thing you're trying to press on us? And there, God's dear son, in his obedient effort to glorify the Father somehow finds it within himself to try one more time to point the debaters of the age to the numinous glory of God. Verse 35. For a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light so that you may become the children, the Reflection: the extension of the light. And then we get that final verse in the gospel reading. That last verse, verse 36. I believe it gives us a brief but very sharp glimpse into Jesus' state of mind following this very disappointing episode. And Jesus departed hiding himself from them. Now, I and and perhaps you, we, we are not so different from those Jews and Greeks. And that's why I think verse 36 is so hurtful in our ears. That our deep human need for certainty, our need to be right, our huge fear of fearing to be wrong, our desire to have all knowledge fully to see the future before taking any action in the present, our urge to talk the word made flesh back into word again, (laughs) that our intellectualizing might cause Jesus to want to hide himself from us, it hurts our hearts. Richard Rohr says this of us. Religious folks insist on answers. Answers that are always true. We love closure, resolution, clarity, while thinking that we are people of faith. <laughs> So B'nai Brown, in her wonderful little book, The Gifts of Imperfection, quotes Anne Lamott, who says, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And Ms. Brown writes, faith is a place of mystery, where we find the courage to trust what we cannot prove and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty to let go of, to drop the intellectual need for the guarantee and the sure thing. That need that sticks in our craw, that unnecessary need that like rocks on a racing pigeon weight us down and inhibit our flight. I would not want to miscommunicate. I want to assure you that I am not anti-education. I am not against uh, intellectual pursuits. Currently, I'm reading a book by um, Steven uh, Pinker uh, titled uh, "The um, Enlightenment Now." It's it's a very hopeful book, and it's uh, deeply researched. And uh, in one place, he says this: "So current studies confirm that educated people are less racist." sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and authoritarian. They place a higher value on imagination and free speech. They are more likely to vote, volunteer, and belong to civic and religious organizations. And I want that. I want that in myself and in my society. But I am also aware that deep inside me, I believe with Paul that the cleverness of the clever will be set aside. People, both believers and non-believers, want certainty. They are seeking assurance. They need the cleverness. But we, you and I, We proclaim Christ crucified. Which can seem foolish to the logic-centric mind. While to persons of faith, it remains the wisdom of God. And what is this wisdom that is folly to the wise? Well, I think it's this. That the truest, most intense realization of the self is obtained by living a life for others. In Paul's words, dying to live. And in the words of Jesus, losing one's life to find it. What is the wisdom that is folly to the wise? I think it's this, that we are to walk in the light that is the mind of Christ to internalize it and to extend it for the sake of others and to reflect it in the darkness. This is the light of our spiritual knowing. It is the divine light that illuminates us, shining, as John Philip Newell says, shining out from the very cradle of the Christ child itself. The light that neither Judas's dark acts of betrayal or my own dark acts, can ever overcome. And so tonight, although I'm stacking up all these paragraphs in front of you, what I'm really trying to do is listen. I'm trying to listen at a deeper level to our scriptures for tonight and to my Uncle Dale's testimony from my boyhood. I sat one morning Not thinking too much, and a word came to me as bright as the sunlight, and I let it mean something to me, and so I walked in the light of it. Try as we might, we cannot know it all, but tonight in the gathering gloom of this holy week, we can remember our calling. We can lay hold once again to the hope of glory. And we can reclaim that spiritual wisdom Mary Oliver discovers among those trees that she honored in her poem. Around me the trees call out, you too have come into this world to be filled with light and to shine. Recently, Gary Jones over at St. Stephen's wrote, The grip of reason and theological argument is giving way to the gentler embrace of intuition. May that be so. And so in the somber intensity of this Holy Week, allow me to just ask of you two things as I quit. First, let me ask you to sit with and to hold gently and reverently to the paradoxes, the complementarity of all the opposites of all the in-betweens and all the unknowables touching the life and the passion of our Lord Christ. And in faith, to seek to trust all that you know of yourself to all that you know of him. And second, let me urge you to open yourself even more widely to the wisdom of your own spiritual intuitions. Where is that place or circumstance into which this week you might risk to plant the seedling of your faith in the hope of the glory of the resurrection? Who is that person or group on whom this week you might fully shine such Christ light as you now currently possess? How this week, by virtue of your obedience, might you, along with Jesus Christ, bring glory to the Father? I suspect that without any study, you already know the answers.